and just a, a massive amount of information, but we want to try to hold it down to a course and a path that we can try to present. And it's very unlikely that we'll finish this morning, and Lord willing, we may try to continue this afternoon, if that be the mind of the pastor to continue on this afternoon. But the thought that we'll start with is that it is very difficult in the day that we live in, and in the world we live in, it is very difficult to find the truth. It is a commodity that is hard to come by. It's very, very difficult in terms of what we see and we hear and we understand to know what the truth is. Whether you're getting that from social media or from the news media or from articles you read or you're hearing it from our government officials, whoever it may be, it is getting more and more difficult to have a knowledge and understanding of whether or not what you're hearing is the truth. <laughs> and it used to be that we understood that people were biased in general ways to what they presented. But now, it seems like we've gotten to the point where those that we would expect to at least reasonably pre present information in an accurate way, now, they'll just flat out lie. <laughs> I mean, it's very discouraging. And it's very difficult when you hear about issues that are happening in this world, across this nation, and across the world. It is very difficult to know whether what you're hearing is the truth. And the Word of God, not anything new, brothers and sisters, <laughs> but the Word of God does tell us in 2 Timothy, let's start with 2 Timothy, where it tells us here in 2 Timothy and in the third chapter, it says, starting in the first verse, This know also, some things we need to know, things we need to appreciate, that in the last days perilous times shall come. For men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemous, disobedient to parents, unholy, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truth breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. Brothers and sisters, these are the days that we're living in, and we have been living in, but it has just become more and more manifested. And if you go on over to the 13th verse, it says, But evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. Now let me say this before we talk about that verse. We mentioned some things last night about what God knows. And we did not mention this, but it is certainly a part of it, that God knows that we're living in an ungodly, wicked world. He knows that we're living among a perverse and a corrupt people. And God has said that He with much long-suffering is going to endure the vessels of wrath that He may manifest and make His power known. So God says He's going to endure this wickedness and this ungodliness until the appointed time. Now He renders some judgments as He has during the course of history. My brothers and sisters, God will abide His time in which He will execute vengeance upon the ungodly. But until that time, God understands, He knows, He appreciates the fact that we have to live in this world. And the Lord Jesus Christ certainly knows that because He endured a contradiction of sinners against Himself during the entire course of His life. 
But it says here that evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. And as we hear information from out there in this world, we need to understand that these people are deceived. And in their deception, they are deceiving others. And in the deception that is in the group they're in, the thought came to mind, it's like a mutual deception society that they are operating in. I mean, it really is. They've gotten wrapped up in their own ideology, their own thoughts, their own wickedness, their own godliness, and they say these words to themselves so many times and to one another that it becomes their truth. But they're deceived. They're deceiving one another. But they also, we have to be careful that they do not deceive us. Amen. And we'll talk about that a little bit as well. But as we think about them being deceived and deceiving others and waxing worse and worse, again, we need to understand that as we deal with this world, this is not new. I can imagine what it was like for Noah to live in his day in a world that had reached a point that was so wicked that God says, I'm going to destroy it all except for Noah and his family. We have other cases. Um, all of us live somewhere. A lot of us may live in cities, but we haven't reached the point that I've heard of yet that a whole city's been destroyed by fire and brimstone like that God did with Sodom and Gomorrah. Nor although there could be some examples. We don't know what the Lord may have been doing or moving in various situations. But you think about the land of Canaan. You think about the Canaanites when God brought the Israelites up and was going to bring them into the land of Canaan. You know what God told them? Or Moses said that God would... He says, I'm not bringing you into this land because of your righteousness or because of your goodness or because of your holiness. But because of the wickedness that is in the land of Canaan mm -hmm. and because of the covenant that I made with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. But it was for the wickedness that the people that were in the land of Canaan were driven out and they would have been absolutely driven out if the people had done what God instructed them to do. But let's go over to the book of Ephesians and see what it says here as we get some understanding about the mindset of these individuals out here in the world and the wickedness of this world. It says in the latter part of the fourth, in the fourth chapter, in the 17th verse of Ephesians, Ephesians 4, 17. And the last phrase is talking about other Gentiles as they walk, and it says they're walking in the vanity of their mind. The next verse goes on and says, and having the understanding darkened. They need to understand that they are vain in their mind and their thinking. That their understanding and their comprehension has been darkened. Over here in the book of Titus, we can pick up an expression here to add to this thought. You go over to the book of Titus. In the first chapter, you can see it says here in the 15th verse, it says unto the pure, all things are pure, but unto them that are defiled and unbelieving, is nothing pure. <laughs> but even their mind and their conscience is defiled. We need to be aware of the wickedness and ungodliness and depravity that there is out there in this world among them that are the unbelieving and that are the defiled. 
They profess they know God, but in good works they deny Him, being abominable and disobedient, and unto every good work reprobate. Reprobate. It says in the margin of my Bible that that can be void of judgment. <laughs> reprobate. Lacking judgment, understanding, comprehension. We had a couple of examples we mentioned when we were talking with Brother Jonathan and Sister Megan and they were talking about some events and experiences that they had. But one thing they had is just like we see so many times. When people get upset and mad about, quote, Christianity or the things of God or the things of the Bible, they always throw out these things about, well, you're supposed to love everybody. You're not supposed to judge anybody. You're supposed to treat everybody with compassion. That's exactly what they said when our national legislator tried to pass that legislation to legalize abortion. And they say we're having compassion for women. We're having sympathy for them. We're reaching out to them. We want to give them their reproductive rights. <laughs> what about the baby's rights? That's right. Over here in the book of Isaiah. See what Isaiah has to say. Isaiah tells us over here in the fifth chapter of the book of Isaiah. Familiar quote that we can make, but we'll turn to it and read it. It says in the book of Isaiah in the fifth chapter, in the twentieth verse, it says, Woe unto them that call evil good and good evil, that put darkness for light and light for darkness, that put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. And listen to this, woe to them that are wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own sight. Isn't that what we're hearing? We know what to do. We have the answer. We're going to decide for you what you should do. And the school system wants to decide for the parents how they're going to educate their children and what they're going to indoctrinate them in is what they want to do. But it says here, woe to them that call evil good and good evil. And that's what we're exactly happening. Well, you can make a statement of truth from the Word of God and they'll say the exact opposite. Yeah. And say, no, you're wrong. That's evil. Mm -hmm. you're, you're abusing your children to teach them the truths that are contained in God's Word as child abuse. These are the type of things that we're hearing. Truth, as it says also in Isaiah, has fallen in the street. <laughs> Equity cannot be found. They do, as it says over here in the book of Romans. We're going to turn the corner here in a minute and move on to some <laughs> more enjoyable things. But it says here in the book of Romans in the first chapter and in the 18th verse, it says, For the wrath of God is a real from heaven and against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. goes on over the 25th verse. After saying a lot of other, we can read all that. But it says in the 25th verse, Who changed the truth of God into a lie and worshiped and served the creature more than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. That's not what they're doing. Worshiping themselves. Mm -hmm. Worshiping their own way, their own thoughts, their own ideas, and whatever truth they may get close to, they hold it in unrighteousness. They pervert it, corrupt it, twist it, 
and manipulated to their own ends. Well, what does it tell us over here in the book of Galatians? Colossians. Colossians. Let's go to Colossians because we need to take heed. It's not like we can just sit over here and say we're okay. <laughs> we, need to, we need to be aware what it says here in Colossians in the second chapter in the eighth verse. It says, Beware! Beware! Lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after tradition of men and after the remote rudiments of the world and not after Christ. So it says as we live in this world, and as we interact in the world, because we do live in this world, and we it's very clear the word of God is it talks about over there <laughs> talking about fornicators and saying the only way you're going to get away from all fornicators is to leave the world. Mm. Well, that's that's the way it is. The only way you can get away from all wickedness is to just not be in this world. The only way you're going to escape that. We're a part of this world. We're in this world. We live in it. But as we live in this world, it tells us that we need to be aware. We need to be conscious of the fact and not allow the things of this world to spoil us through its philosophy and through its vain deceit, through its corruption, through its manipulation. And in our day and time, we have to be very, very careful. Because they have gotten very adept and have been, even so continue on, at manipulating the truth and presenting it in such a way that make you feel like that you ought to be able to buy into this and that you're so wrong and so evil and so bad to think any other way than the way they're thinking. And how does this happen to us? In our day and time, why is it worse today than it has been in the past? One word, accessibility. Accessibility is what is radically different today than it has been in the past. In the past, yes, an individual may have been exposed to the wickedness in their neighborhood, in their community, and the society that they interacted with, but there was a limit there. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, they may pick up a newspaper and read about some bad things that are happening somewhere. But by and large, the newspaper was just giving you the facts of various situations that were taking place. They weren't really editorializing the way that you find today. But now we have today, brothers and sisters, such available information unto us, readily available in our phone. We carry it with us all the time. We have it where we just turn to it, see it, and it is very, we need to be very careful because it is very insidious the way it works. It manipulates us as we look at this information. Let's talk about social media. Social media, this is the way it's designed. This is a built-in program mechanism of the way that not only social media works, but when you do research on an issue, when you... Uh, want to buy something, and you just go out there and do research to buy something. This happens with all these things. With all these things, the system is gathering all that information. And as it gathers that information, it feeds you information. <laughs> and especially in the social media. Let's say you let's say you go into Facebook. You go into Facebook, you flip down to something, you see something that's interesting, you click on that. 
Well, once you click on that, that's going to take you to something else. And that may take you to something else. And even if you don't go to that something else and something else, the, the Facebook system knows where you're gone and they're going to feed you something later on. And it's going to continue you down that path. And the, and the example that people talk about a lot of times, which leads us into sin, bad sin, is pornography. It will lead you down that road to pornography. And that is bad, brothers and sisters. But I'll tell you, what is just as bad is being taken away and spoiled through philosophy and vain deceit of this world. Is your ideology, your belief system, your worldview being corrupted by the ways and the thoughts and the traditions and the ideology of this world. That's what we need to watch out for. And it just slowly works on you. And it works on you in so many different aspects. Let's say you have small children you're raising. Got children you're raising up. And so you run into some issues. You're concerned about that. You go out there on the internet and you see what the internet might. You can look up to find out about that. And you may find good information, but you may find bad information. You may find information that leads you in the direction of raising your children different than what the Word of God says. See, it's just all those little small areas. And, and, and the problem is, unless you have an awareness, unless you're taking this verse to heart and saying, I need to beware. Every single time you expose yourself to information out here in this world, you need to have some awareness of what you're exposing yourself to. So how do we deal with that? And that's really what we want to try to talk about. It's a lot, lot, lot you could say in different ways. But this is the thought that came to my heart and mind as I was thinking about this. Is how do we deal with this? How do we, how do we deal with life when there's so much out there that is being perverted and corrupted? Well, if we go back to 2 Timothy in the third chapter, after talking about the perilous times, after talking about the evil men and the deceivers and waxing worse and worse, then it says in the 14th verse, it says, but continue. But continue thou, Timothy, in the things which thou hast learned and hast been assured of, knowing of whom thou hast learned them. And that from a child thou hast known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. You've known the Holy Scriptures. You've been founded in the Word of God. And that's where we need to stay. That's where we need to be grounded. For it goes on and it says, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness that the man of God may be perfect, <laughs> mature, fully grown, fully aware. You know, that's a part of that maturity is having an awareness of what's going on around you and what you're exposing yourself to. doesn't mean you can't research and try to get some information. There's, there's some good information out there on the Internet. You just have some awareness of what you're doing. They may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. Mm -hmm. So we need to make sure 
that as we read information, hear information, think about information, issues happening in politics, bills that are being passed, countries that are invading other countries, as all those things occur, and as you think about all those things, you need to be thinking those things through the lens of the Word of God. You need to have a worldview that is based in thus saith the Word of God. You need to have a perspective that comes from the Word of God. You need to be asking yourself, do I believe what I believe about what is happening based on the Word of God? So let's think about some of those things. Let's think about, because God has given us some things. God has prescribes the things unto us that are ways in which we are to operate as we live in this world. And we want to talk about some of those. But first, before we do that, we want to talk about what is a fundamental aspect of what our belief system needs to be able, needs to start with before we can even begin. I mean, if, you, if you're not here, you're just, you're not the place you need to be to even start having yourself where you need to be established. Because our verse in Romans 1, in the, in the 25th verse, said that they changed the truth of God into a lie and worshipped and served the creature more than the Creator. Fundamentally, we've got to understand that there is one God, and that one God is the Creator God. And that He has created the world in six days about 6,000 years ago. If we don't understand that, if you don't have a basis, and you find this throughout the world, just like it is in this verse, over and over and over again, the Creator, the One who has made all things, by Jesus Christ all things have been made. He is the Creator. He is the Lord of all. He is the King of all. All these things just reiterate over and over again that God is the Creator. So then, and, and I know you're established in that, so we're just, this, there's, there's a massive amount of information that can be said about every one of these issues that I want to look at. So we're only going to be able to hit the highlights. But the point we're trying to make as we go through these things is go to the Word of God. That's what we're trying to get you to. Is go to the Word of God. Evolution, brothers and sisters, has just become so dominant and how has it become dominant? Through the school system, through the museums, through articles, through nature shows, through when you go to national parks. Everywhere you go, you get pounded with that over and over and over again that we have evolved over millions of years. It is just hammered into us. And why do they want to do that? Because they want to serve themselves and not the Creator. But brother says that we need to be able to stand firm and to stand fast because church after church after church has gone and compromised and gone by the wayside and said we're going to buy into these concepts. Not only this, but a lot of these other things. We need to stand fast, brothers and sisters, in the Word of God. We need to be able to stand up to say that evolution is a lie. From the devil. It is a corruption. It is a deception. It is a massive deception upon a massive portion of this entire world. And what? And, and here's some examples 
of the deception that they're in. Evolution will not stand up against the fundamental principles of God's creation. It can't even get started. It can't even begin. It is a biblical scientific fact that you cannot get that you cannot get energy from no energy. Mm-hmm. I mean that just can't happen. It can't just come out of nowhere. It just can't come out of nothing. Not in and of itself, you understand. <laughs> it did come out of nothing, but not by anything that we did. <laughs> or that nature did. It was by what God did. And just think about the power that exists in this world. And just to give you one example, I mean, this is one small example out of the entire universe that God has created. And that is the sun. The sun's out there shining today in an incredible manifestation of God's power that we have manifested unto us every day when we get up in the morning. That the sun is shining. The sun, brothers and sisters, they say, burns... Four million tons a second that is converted from mass into energy. That's just, you can't even think about that. I mean, it's just beyond thinking about. It's beyond thinking about that the sun is 93 million miles away, and yet when you walk out the door, even as cold as it is out there this morning, you can feel the heat of the sun on your face. And the brightness is so intense that you cannot directly look upon it. Mm. Such as such is the power that exists in God's creation. And you can't get that kind of power from just nothing. Mm-hmm. And it didn't. Well, you know, we said a minute ago it sort of did come from nothing, but it really didn't come from nothing. It came from God's power. Mm. Amen. God's power is manifested in His creation. Think about photosynthesis. This is just an amazing thing to me. And think about this too. The vast majority of the energy that we use every single day upon the face of this earth does come from the sun. Not 100%, but a significant amount of that comes from the sun. It's just pouring out. There's tons of energy every second. And of that energy that comes, the vast majority of that energy is processed in one way. And that's by photosynthesis. Just all over this world, plants are bringing in and through a highly efficient process that scientists today still can't explain. It is very efficiently, billions of times every day, converting the energy from the sun into usable energy upon the face of this planet. It's amazing. It's absolutely phenomenal. Brother says we need to lay hold of these things, rejoice in these things, and not be spoiled and drawn away by the philosophy and the vain deceit of this world. Another thing, you cannot get, you can't go from no energy to energy, and you cannot go from no life to life. Another biblical, scientific, absolute, proven fact. You cannot get life from non-life. Nor can you get information from no information. Life consists of information. The DNA in our beings contains a vast, it's a huge, it's a 
storage mechanism that exceeds all the computers of this world. It holds a massive amount of information. And I read this little thing, and I know I can't remember it accurately, but it doesn't matter because the numbers are so astronomical, it makes the point. Uh, you're familiar with little photographic slides, the little slides you put in a slide projector? Well, if you took one of those slides and you printed the King James Bible on that slide, that would be a lot of information, right? But to get close to the information that the DNA will store within our bodies, you would have to have, I think it was something like, seven and a half million rows across, seven and a half million rows down, and there had to be a King James Bible printed in every single square to get to the storage capacity that God has created within our very beings. Brothers and sisters, those are these numbers, this power of God, it is just beyond. <laughs> it's beyond anything that man can conceive or think about or possibly imagine could come into place. Not only that, but evolution is statistically impossible. Amen. I mean, the things that would have to happen, they see this is the reason the earth keeps getting older and older because they need more and more time. But there's not enough time. There's never enough time. There's not enough millions or billions or trillions of years to even from a mathematical, statistical viewpoint for life to come even if you had some life to start with. That's right. I've heard the example before, even if you... God, that sounds bad, but if you take a frog and you put it in a blender and you blend it all up, you've got all the elements of life, right? But Moses did you leave that for millions of years and it's never going to turn into a frog. <laughs> so what do they do in the face of all this this is the deception that takes place when they're faced with the fact that you cannot get energy from no energy you can't get life from no life and you cannot get information from no information and by the way the information that's in our DNA is not just raw data it has a language it has meaning there's a code system None of that just evolves in and of itself. It all has to have intelligence from somewhere. Something has to design it. So where do the, how do they get around all this though? They make up fairy tales is what they do. I mean, we need to say it for what it is, brothers and sisters. I mean, it really is a lie. It's a total deception. It's a manipulation of truth. They actually make up things. I mean, I, I'm not telling you something that they're not really saying. you just got to look at it for what it is. Amen. You read their information and they say, we think this is what happened or we're speculating this took place or the cause of this, this, and this. This must be what happened. But what they're really saying is there can't be a God so it's got to be something else. <laughs> But they're making up the stories. They're making up those things. But what does God say? What does the Word of God say? The Word of God says this, or God says this in the book of Isaiah. In the book of Isaiah, in the 44th chapter, we find down in verse 8, and I'm just going to read the latter part of this, because God says this of Himself. He says, Yea, there is no God, I know not any. 
He says in the verse before that, in the sixth verse, I am the first and the last beside me. There is no God. God says, I am it. But what does the world say? The world says exactly what the serpent said in the Garden of Eden unto Eve. It says the same thing over here. Where the serpent says in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 1, Yea, hath God said. Yea, hath God said. That's what they want to say. God didn't say. Yeah, but this or that or they manipulate it. They twist it. They try to set it aside. But brothers and sisters, we need to be established firmly in the reality that God does say. God has said. God has declared. God has given us His Word. God has given us His truth. And He has given us the truth. And by the way, brothers and sisters, as we think about God, and this is why it is so important to understand that the world was created 6,000 years ago by God in those six 24-hour days, because we need to understand that we don't have just a religion here. We don't have just an ideology here. We don't have just a belief system to follow. What we've got here, brothers and sisters, is reality. We have here historical truth. The religion of Christianity, as we would call it that, is firmly based in historical reality. Some people ask the question, when did Christianity start? They say, well, when Christ came. Didn't go back far enough. You might say, well, it was on Mount Sinai when the law was given to Moses. Matter of fact, I just read this week somebody talking about that monotheism was established by Moses, which means worshiping just one God. That that started with Moses. Doesn't go back far enough, does it? You got to go back at least to Genesis 1 1 that says, In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. But in reality, you have to go back even further than that. Because God tells us that He did some things before the foundation of the world. Amen. That's when Christianity was established. Amen. That's when the covenant of grace was put in place. That's when these things of God... That's why it's so important. You need to understand the basis of who we are is firmly rooted in reality. They want to throw us out there today, this world, the deceivers, the corrupt men and women of this world, want to throw you out there as extremists. We're not extremists. Don't allow yourself to be labeled as an extremist. We're not extremists, brothers and sisters. We are solidly founded in the middle of God's truth. There are some people out there on the right, as it's called, that have gotten into some extremes that are not where we want to be. And see, that's what makes it tough too. You hear things from that side <laughs> that you're thankful for because it's way, over, way, way from that side. <laughs> but we don't go into one ditch to get away from the other ditch. Amen. <laughs> we want to stay, brother, just in the Word of God. And again, that's why we have to be so careful in all things that we hear. Even if you're listening to Conservative commentators, you need to be careful. 
that you're still taking what you hear and viewing it through the lens of the Word of God. That we're like the Berean brethren were, that we search the Scriptures to see if these things be so. That we verify it against, thus saith the Word of God. Go over to the book of Psalms. In Psalms 146, and as we say these things to you, I just I want to encourage you. I want to help you. I want to help ourselves. This is not to chastise anyone or say you don't know these things or berate you or whatever, but it's to help us. It's to help us as we live in the midst of this crooked and perverse world. God tells us over here in Psalms 146 in the 6th verse. He says, and listen what it starts with. How does this verse start? As it's talking about the Lord our God, which made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that therein is. The Creator. And then it says, which keepeth truth forever. Which keepeth truth forever. God also says in Psalms that His truth endureth to all generations. Amen. I want to read this verse, brothers and sisters, because I want you to understand that as you interact with this world, you don't have to make truth true. Amen. <laughs> you don't have to make sure that the reality of truth itself will stand. Now we need to defend it. <laughs> Now we need to stand upon it, but we never need, we don't ever need to be worried that God's truth is going to fail. Right. We don't ever need to be worried that this world somehow or another is going to come up with some proof that what God says is not right. Amen. That's never going to happen, brothers and sisters. So we can have confidence in the Word of God. And we can trust and lean to the Word of God. And as we do that, we need to be careful that we do not we do not add to God's Word and that we do not take away from God's Word. Amen. And that's very difficult for us to do because we bring all of our preconceived notions and biases and thoughts as we come into the Word of God. So as you hear things, and this is what's been true about millions of years, back... I don't know how far you need to go back. It doesn't matter. A thousand years, two thousand years, whatever. However far you back before anybody talked about millions of years, nobody believed in millions of years. Nobody thought there were any millions of years in the Word of God. Amen. Nobody ever said that. Nobody ever said, well, I think there's millions of years that these six days are really millions of years each. Nobody ever said that there's a gap between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2 that there are millions of years. Nobody ever said that. When did that start getting said? It started getting said when the deceivers of this world brought forth their deception of evolution in millions of years and convinced people that they were right instead of God being right. So now they somehow have got to fit millions of years into the Word of God. They've got to get that in there somehow and add that into God's Word. We need to be very careful that we stick to what says the Word of God as those will try to distort it, pervert it, twist it, and manipulate it. But brothers and sisters, they'll never change the reality of God's Word. Now let's talk about, boy, I haven't gotten very far at all. <laughs> let's talk about some of these things that God has prescribed. Some things that God 
has given. And these are realities that we face every day. They're ongoing issues. And yet they're prescribed and laid down by God in His Word, a lot of these from the very beginning. God says in Genesis chapter 1, right off the bat, in the 26th verse, He says, And God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over the earth and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So God has given man the dominion over His creation upon the face of this earth. It's a blessing that God's given to us. It's a responsibility. We're to be good stewards of that. But it has been given unto us. Now, a point that I want to make here as we go through this, and this is what happens with so many of these things that are laid down in God's Word that people begin to manipulate and twist. They begin to say, well, yeah, but. Mm. (laughs) I I mean, that may be true, but what about preserving this species or that species or if we're going to build this pipeline all in this area and the impact that it's going to have on the environment. So you have all these things that says, well, yeah, but, but the question is, is the biblical perspective. What is the priority? What is that that we're looking to? What is it that God has given dominion and not given dominion? What is the purpose under which those things have been created? They've been created certainly for God's glory. But they're also being created for man, for our benefit, for our use as we live upon the face of this earth. And again, we need to be responsible for that. It doesn't mean that we ignore environmental concerns. Certainly not. We certainly can walk hand in hand with the environmentalists in those areas in which there is a responsible, just, right, good, biblical perspective on taking care of our environment. And in times of the past, that has there's certainly been times when there's been a mess of that. Mm-hmm. I mean, really. There's been periods of times in histories when you think about how that we had industries all up down rivers that were just pouring all manner of pollution into the rivers and corrupt. There's a river up there in Atlanta, Georgia that was so bad, not that far back in the past. <laughs> that you just you couldn't swim in it. You couldn't do anything in it. It was just filthy. And that has been cleaned up. That's a good thing that has taken place. But just because, this is an important point, just because we mess up our dominion, just because we don't get it right, just because we falter and fail on that, does not change the truth that God says, let them have dominion. It doesn't take away the truth of the dominion that God has given unto mankind over the rest of the creation that is upon the face of this earth. It doesn't negate it. It doesn't minimize it. It does mean that we have to be conscious of it, aware of it, but we don't need to see as, see as the environmentalists talk, as legislation is passed, as pipelines are shut down and all that. We need to have this biblical perspective We have the dominion. We have the authority. We have the right to utilize those things in a responsible way. Those are things that are very active, prevalent, 
issues that happen in our society, in our nation, and in our world, and we need to deal with those things from a biblical perspective. Established in the very first chapter of the book of Genesis. Let's go to the next thing. And like I said, you could just talk a long time about these, and this next one is probably the only one we'll get to. But it also says in the book of Genesis, in the very next verse of that first chapter, it says, So God created man in his own image, and the image of God created he him, male and female created he them. Boy, there's a loaded issue today. Fundamentally established by God at the very beginning. The very first two beings on the face of this earth was a man and a woman. And we totally, totally gone totally off the deep end. Just it's, I, I would have even five years ago would not have imagined the things that are being said today in that regard. But let's just talk about it. Let's talk about this a little bit. Let's go on over to the second chapter in the 18th verse. For it says, and it's interesting because he talked about all the rest of his creation. He told them to go out, be fruitful, multiply. We know that in the plant kingdom and also in the animal kingdom, also in the fishes of the sea, that by and large you have male and female aspects of those things. And by that they do multiply after their kind and produce on down through the years unto today. But what about when you created man? On those verses, he just he just skims right over that, as it were. <laughs> but when he gets to man, there's some time spent on this issue of how it is and why it is that we have male and female. It says, The Lord God said, it is no good that man should be alone. Whoa, wait a minute. What? God is saying it's not good? <laughs> I mean, he's already spent five days saying it's very good. And here he gets along during the sixth day, and we're getting during the sixth day, and he's created the beast of the field and all these various things, created Adam, and then all of a sudden God says it's not good. You know, people talk about the status and the role of women, talking about how that they're inferior, lower status. We're trying to get them in their place and their position and all those things. Brothers and sisters, have you ever thought about that God said that His creation on the sixth day and His entire creation could not be pronounced as very good until the woman was created? Amen. And took your women <laughs> to bring it to the full satisfactory state before God that He could pronounce it as very good. Because before that, He said it's not good. <laughs> he says His solution, and not that He was surprised, by the way, of course, but His solution was, I will make Him a help me for Him. And by the way, saying that He was not surprised just emphasizes the point is why did God tell us all this? So we would know it. <laughs> so we would understand that it's not good for the man to be alone. And that I say that I will make a help me for him. 
And he goes on, talks about out of the ground of the earth that he brought all the creatures and he looked at all of those and there was not found to help me for him. So then the 21st verse, it says, The Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam. And he slept, and he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh and stead thereof. And the rib, which the Lord God had taken from the man, made he a woman and brought her unto the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, and she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore shall a man leave his father and mother and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh, and they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. So we have very clearly here that God has established, and this same, listen, this same biological reality exists today. Do not let your belief be perverted, corrupted by the lies, the deception that's being put out there in this world. Believe what God says. Don't even say in this kind of issue, we have a tendency to say, whoa, yeah, I'm a man and my wife's a woman. You know, I'm telling me different. That's all well and good, brothers and sisters, but your foundation to believe needs to be in the Word of God. That's what I'm trying to get you to. That's an emotional reaction. (laughs) We need to have a biblical reaction. God has created male and female. And starting with Adam, it started out his XY chromosome and that's what it has been even to this very day. The female has been XX chromosome and it's been true to this very day. Now, you may hear, maybe so, I wouldn't say it's not, that there are some rare mutations of that. And there may be that, but you know why that is? It's because of sin and corruption. It is not because of the truth that is established in God's Word. That doesn't change the truth of God's Word. Sin and corruption and genetic deterioration throughout the years should not drive the Word of God. It's the Word of God that we stand on and the truth that we abide by. People today are radically confused on this issue. But God is not confused. And let me say this too. Adam and Eve were not confused. (laughs) Can you imagine when Eve was brought to Adam, do you think there was any question in Adam's mind that he was a man and that Eve was a woman? (laughs) And was there any doubt in Eve's mind that she was a woman and Adam was a man? And I'll tell you, brothers and sisters, and I'll say this, because I think it's important for us as Christians, because again, we live in a corrupt, perverted world that is perverted sexuality, manipulated, corrupted, and they made it so vile and ungodly and twisted in so many ways that we want to flee and run. But again, don't go to the other dance, brothers and sisters. We do not need to deny the masculinity of men nor the femininity of women. God says to quit ye like men. Be men. Be Christian men. Be Christian women. But be a man and be a woman. That's what God has created. Don't deny that that you are. And God has created us with those sexual desires and feelings. Don't deny that reality. 
It needs to be in the proper biblical context. But don't try to deny it like it's something wrong. It is a God-given reality that God spent time on in His Word to make it clear unto us that it is not good for man to be alone. I am going to create a helpmeet for him. And God didn't just create another intellectual companion for Adam. He could have created another man. There's a lot of men that have very good positive relationships. A lot of brothers in the church have very good and we support one another, encourage one another, enjoy spending time with one another. And there's a lot of good fellowship that exists there. But God said that's not it. Sometimes women want to say, I want you to love me for my mind, right? <laughs> my insist I'm telling you, your husband's going to love you because you're a woman. <laughs> God has created us male and female. God has created us. So yes, the Word of God tells us, and we're going to refer to this, you know this, in the book of Ephesians tells us that husbands are, husbands are to love their wives, right? It tells us in the book of Titus, that wives are to love their husbands, right? What if that doesn't happen? And I already have to say, what if? We know it doesn't happen. <laughs> doesn't happen. We know that marriages are not perfect. We know we struggle. We all have issues and problems in our marriages. We all have all those things we talked about last night. All those infirmities and sins and hindrances that get all in our way. We all have all kinds of physical problems, mental problems, emotional problems. All those things. We carry all kind of baggage. And the older you get, the more baggage you get to carry. <laughs> so you just have all kinds of things that accumulate during the course of your life. And the more people you know, and the more experiences you've had, and the more things you remember about what's happening in this world, so you just have a lot of things that you're dealing with as we go through the midst of all of that. And so many times between husbands and wives, that all gets dumped on each other, right? <laughs> So all that happens and we struggle and we get frustrated and we get angry and we're upset and our expectations don't get met. We have all kind of those issues. But do any of those things change the reality that God has created man and woman, one man by the way, and one woman to be united together in marriage. And that's what God has established. So don't move away from that, but stay firmly established upon thus saith the word of God. Well, we'll just stop there and we'll just have to see if we go any further with any of that. But just think about, brothers and sisters, the truths that God has given us and the fundamental realities, so many of which have been established very early on in the word of God. And this truth does stand and we need to stand upon it have that biblical view of it. And even as things happen, and again, like I said, so many times we we can have good beliefs, we can have good understandings, we can have good perspectives, but a lot of times those are just things that have developed throughout our life. We just kind of bought into our own set of beliefs and they can be good, but we need to make sure they're established in the Word of God. We need to make sure that as we hear issues and we face issues, that we go back to the Word of God. So may God bless that that has been said. That's all that's said. We pray that the Lord will bless it unto your edification. Amen. Amen. I've certainly enjoyed being here with you at this meeting. I appreciate your 
kind words, your fellowship, your friendship, and most of all, your prayers as we tried to stand before you during this time. We want to go back to the thought that we began this morning and just pick up where we were. We did speak to the reality that there's much deception and corruption and perversion out there of the basic truths which God has prescribed and established from the foundation of the world pretty much here as we have seen in some of these fundamental things we have looked at and it's been perverted and twisted but how that God's truth does stand and how that we as the people of God need to be firmly rooted and grounded in thus saith the word of God as we face these issues and as we are exposed to information and hear information that we are making sure that our foundations in the word of God and that we don't get carried away uh, with whatever philosophy that we may be hearing. We don't want to be spoiled. We don't let that do we have that is good of God to be spoiled by this world. So we talked about dominion. We talked about marriage. Of course, we first talked about God as the Creator. But then we talked about dominion, talked about marriage, and the significance and importance of those things as God has prescribed them out of His Word. And I did want to say this as a part of that, and all these things we'll look at, is that nothing I am saying is minimizing the complexity of these issues that we have to deal with because of, like we talked about last night, because of our sins and affirmities and because of the wickedness of this world. I'm not just trying to wash away that these are difficult issues and that you can just go to the Word of God and say, okay, marriage is supposed to be one man, one woman for life. That's it. We're good to go. That's not... But that... I'm not ignoring the reality that we have those struggles in our life. Mm -hmm. But as we deal with those struggles, we need to be firmly rooted and grounded in the fact that man has been given dominion and God has prescribed that one man, one woman is that that is entered into marriage and that he has created male and female. Now you have that fundamental basis upon which you operate even as we struggle with the realities of life. Even as you struggle, like in marriage, you struggle in your marriage, and you reach points in your marriage where you're just ready to give up. Or at least you want to give up. <laughs> That's what your nature wants to take you into, is just to throw in the towel and give it up. But what the Word of God does for us is it gives us a foundation, a stability, an anchor that holds us fast in the midst of those storms, in the midst of those trials, that helps us get through that so that our marriage and our dominion is not based in just a philosophical belief that we have developed over the years or the way we've been raised or the way mom and daddy taught us or the good example they give us or the good example fellow church members give us, which is all good, but it is fundamentally and finally and ultimately based in the Word of God. Amen. That's what we're trying to get to. So let's begin to think about then, obviously, what happens next. <laughs> so if you go back to the book of Genesis in the first chapter, in the 28th verse, after God said that He created the, the created them in His own image, male and female, created He them, He says, And God blessed them, and God said unto them, Be fruitful and multiply. And replenish the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion. So he says, that that I have given to you, you go out and do. And part of doing that 
is multiplying above the face of the earth and replenish the earth. And by the way, that word replenish, sometimes people will take that out and say, well, that sounds like uh, something like we use it today. You empty something out and you want to replenish it. That's the way we use that word. But if you go back and look at that word as it was used in this day and time, it just simply means to feel. To feel the earth. And then we find out that in fact, if you go over to the book of Genesis in the fifth chapter, after God says same thing again, in the first verse, this is the book of the generations of Adam in the day that God created man. And in the likeness of God made he him. Male and female created he them and blessed them and called their name Adam in the day when they were created. And Adam lived 130 years and begot a son in his own likeness after his image and called his name Seth. And the days of Adam after he had begotten Seth were 800 years and he begat sons and daughters. Mm -hmm. So they did what God instructed them to do. They were fruitful and they didn't multiply. And then we find what happened. God destroyed everybody but Noah and his family. But then what did he tell Noah? When Noah came off the ark, he tells him in the ninth chapter of the book of Genesis, and God blessed Noah and his sons, and he said unto them, Be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. So we have this fundamental principle of the family unit. And that's why the family is called the basic fundamental unit of society. That's why you have the concept of the nuclear family. It is the very core of how God has created a functioning society in this world. It is the family unit. So we need to stand by that family unit. We need to believe in it, support it, and it is under major attack today. That anything goes, any combination goes, any situation goes. It takes a village to raise a child. And see, you, you get all those concepts. See, that, that can have some good parts to it. Yeah. This brother here has got small children he raises. He needs all the support he gets from all y'all in raising those children. But you are not his family. You are not him and his wife and his children. They are the family unit. We need to have that biblical perspective, that biblical view of those things. Now, what does the Word of God say? If you go over to the book of Ephesians, I'm going to turn there. But it tells us over there in the 6th chapter that children are to obey their parents, right? Mm -hmm. And it tells fathers that they are to raise their children to nurture and ammunition of the Lord, right? Mm -hmm. What if that doesn't happen? And again, I don't have to say what if because we know it doesn't happen. We know that we struggle with that. We know that children always obey their parents and know that parents don't always raise their children in the manner that they ought to be raised. Does that mean that we give up on family? That we just throw it out? That we say, well, it's just not any good? We need to come up with something better. Family's not working. We need something better than that that God has prescribed. We don't do that, do we? If we were to do that, we would have never made it to start with because what happened... We find out that Cain rose up and killed Abel. Mm -hmm. <laughs> boy, that, <laughs> that makes family look pretty bad, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> boy, I don't want a part of that. But no, brothers and sisters, God has established that. He has ordained that. And is that that we have been blessed with and that, that that we should continue with. And that just flows right on into 
this concept of filling the earth. And we just want to kind of flow from the berries to the family right on into the fact that it is by that multiplying and filling the earth that God has ordained that you would have what? The extended family. The extended family goes out to society. You have greater society going into people groups. And you have people groups going out into nations. Now let's talk about this a little bit. Because if you go over to the book of Genesis, we'll find how this happens in the 11th chapter of the book of Genesis. Think about what happens here. You're familiar with the story of the Tower of Babel. And how the whole earth was of one language in one speech. And how that they had come together and they're going to build this tower that they may stay together. And the Lord says in the 6th verse, Behold, the people is one. And they all have one language. And this they begin to do and nothing will restrain them from nothing will be restrained from them, which they have imagined to do. In other words, they were not separating. They were not filling the earth as God had instructed first Adam and Eve and then Noah again that they were to do. And so what does God do? Well, let me talk about first, in the light of what's going on today, what God did not do. This is why these issues are so important. Let me tell you what God did not do. God did not change the color of their skin. He did not change the style of their hair. He did not change their facial features. In other words, they were not not divided by those type of external characteristics. What did God do? He says in this in the night next verse, the seventh verse, go to, let us go down, and there confound their language. That they may not understand one another's speech. No, the Lord scattered them abroad from thence upon the face of all the earth, and they left off to build the city. Therefore the name of it is called Babel, because the Lord did there confound the language of all the earth, and from thence did the Lord scatter them abroad upon the face of the earth. Brothers and sisters, why today do we have different populations across the face of this earth? It is because God scattered them in dividing their languages one from another. Now, once they were divided, here we're going back to another biblical example of the genetic realities that God has created. Once they were separated, then what happened? The genetic pool was all narrowed down by the separate people groups they were in or the separate nations they were in. It did not create separate races. The concept of race or separate races is not a biblical concept. We need to get that firmly, our minds firmly around that, that race, the term, the concept of using race to describe different people, individuals, is not a biblical concept. It has been a major plague upon this nature for a long, long time, and I'm just shocked, I tell you, I'm truly shocked having experienced what I've experienced through my life to see us coming to the point that we are today where now race is being driven as a divisive wedge 
Again, the only concept in which race can exist is in the concept in the mind of evil and corruption and sin and depravity. And it's like when we go back to the issue of male and female. And I should have said this then. There's a lot you could say. But when you go back to that and you think about the idea of transgender, when we talk about that issue, we need to make sure that we're talking about it in the context that transgender is a non-existent entity. It's not real. It doesn't exist. There are only two genders, male and female. Biological male and female. There's nothing anything else. Transgender is a word that describes a sinful attitude and ideology and behavior. But it is not a thing, a real thing in and of itself. That's the same thing that we run into with race. To divide people by races is a sinful mentality. It is a corrupt mentality. It is a mentality that has even been driven further than it already was by the evolutionary concept that says people have evolved differently and therefore we are different. But what does the Word of God say? The Word of God tells us over in the book of Acts. Over in the book of Acts, we find this in the 17th chapter. Where the Apostle Paul was there on Marzeal. What does he have to say to the people there? As he is speaking unto them, and notice again, here goes Paul talking to them in the 24th verse. He said, God that made the world. There's our Creator God again. And all things therein. Seeing that he is Lord of heaven and earth, dwelleth not in temples, neither made with hands, neither is he worshipped with man's hands, as though he needeth anything, seeth he giveth to all life and breath and all things. Boy, see, he's covering a lot of ground, isn't he? <laughs> and then he says, And man hath made of one blood all nations of men for to dwell on the face of the earth. One blood. There's only one race, and that is the human race. Amen. That's it. There's not any other races. Now, there are people groups. And there are nations. Go back to the book of Genesis in the 10th chapter. And we find in the 10th chapter, there is detail given unto us about Noah and his descendants and how that they were divided as a result of those languages. And it says this about his three sons. We're only going to read the last part. If you go down to the 31st verse of the 10th chapter of the book of Genesis, it says, These are the sons of Shem, and notice these expressions. After their families, there's our family unit. After their tongues, that's the division that God made by the languages. In their lands now, as they have been separated across the face of the earth, after their nations that then were established as a result of that separation. Then it says in the last verse, these are the families of the sons of Noah after their generations in their nations, and by these were the nations divided in the earth after the flood. So why do we have these? Because of the separation that God made in separating the languages out, and the people went into those different nations. Now, we talked about you can have, once they're separated out in these, and because of the genetic uh, limitation and the pooling of that and the not intermixing across the whole world, they do develop specific characteristics, such as skin color. 
and hair color and, and whatever other characteristics you may have. Those are things that are also genetics. Now the other thing that happens as well, and this is where people get it really crossed up, is that as people are separated out in these people groups, they do develop certain behaviors. There are certain cultures that do develop as a result of those populations being separated into their own groups. And some of those behaviors and some of those cultures are not good. <laughs> and some of those are very wicked and very ungodly. But it's not because of the color of their skin or the shape of their nose or how their hair looks. It is because of the sinful and corrupt nature and because they and their given population have followed and gone down a path of particular ungodliness and wickedness. That's why, brothers and sisters, we need to make sure that we have a clear mind and that that we're dealing with. People want to say, well, you're treating so-and-so in such a way because of their skin color or because of their race. No, brothers and sisters, if I had somebody on the job when I was a supervisor working and they came in with unacceptable behaviors and they wouldn't correct that behavior and they got fired. They didn't get fired because of what their skin color was. They got hired because of their behavior. <laughs> so again, these things helps us get our mind around and understand how that we need to be dealing with these huge major issues that are out there. And again, this is a extremely complicated. I mean, it is an extremely complicated issue. And there's so much baggage. And people have so many inbred thoughts about how things are. And of course, we hear in this old critical race theory now that there is just a belief out there that just simply because your color of your skin, you are inherently, genetically hardwired to have certain behaviors and beliefs. <laughs> but when we get to that point and it's that deep and it's that hardcore, it is extremely difficult to deal with. And it has been. It's being a major challenge in the face of this nation to deal with this. And I'm thankful, for, especially for parents who have their children in schools that are standing up to this. And we need to do all we can to help and support them. And there are being some parental rights bills being passed in various states. And there's some activity of that now in the state of Georgia. You need to be praying about that. Because it's dealing with that very issue of not only dealing with critical race theory and other issues, but also the fact that parents have the authority, the right, and the responsibility to direct the upbringing of their own children. Amen. <laughs> so we need to pray about that. But it ought to be again. We can have emotional reactions about that, but our reactions need to be based in the Word of God. Mm -hmm. It needs to come from a fundamental understanding of what is said in God's Word. Well, let's move on to some other thoughts. And these go to some scriptures to establish some of these as well. This next one gets into talking about the fact that God has prescribed that we would operate on an economy. That a business, that there's concept to private ownership. Again, these things coming in a major attack. There's definitely elements of our society that are pushing toward socialism. They're pushing toward Marxism and those types of issues. But we need to understand again what God's Word says. First and foremost, God has created us to work. Amen. <laughs> Boy, that's a big issue. In Genesis, in the second chapter, we found, what did he say? In the beginning, with Adam. This was before Eve was even been formed. 
It says, after he created the Garden of Eden, it says, when the Lord God took the man and put him into the garden to dress it and keep it. <coughs> couple of things there. One is that God did create the garden for Adam. He was his. Remember now, I don't know when you ever think about this. Sometimes it's hard to think about and it can be dangerous to speculate about what it would have been like if the period in the longer time that Adam and Eve lived before the fall occurred. But I think we can safely say since God had said that you are to be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth and if they had stayed in the Garden of Eden and they had been fruitful and multiplied that their children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren would have left the Garden of Eden. Right? <laughs> Else they wouldn't have replenished the earth. Right? And God says you got to fill the earth. So the Garden of Eden, I'm taking from that, that's me thinking, that was made for Adam and Eve. And there, what would you say? Immediate family. I mean, how far, far that may go before they start leaving. <laughs> they had the Garden of Eden. But the point there is that it was theirs. It was given to them. They owned it in that sense. But they were to work. He was to work, it says. Work in the garden to dress it and keep it. We can go over to the New Testament and add some foundation to this concept of the work and labor that we have. In 1 Thessalonians, we turn over here. First Thessalonians to the 4th chapter in the 11th verse, we find these words. Always been fascinating few phrases here that we find. And what's interesting is, is that this statement is made right after he beseeches the brethren to increase more and more in their love one to another. And that ye study to be quiet, to do your own business, and to work with your own hands as we commanded you. Yeah. Take care of yourself. Do your own business. Work with your own hands. Provide for your own self. Provide for your family. Do what you need to do as you're able to do, you understand, as you're able to do to provide for yourself. Let's go over here to the book of James. The book of James, let's add to this with what James has to say. Just to add this thought about ownership, business, labor, working, economy. What does it say here in James in the fourth chapter? And there's a lesson here about depending and trusting on God. So this is a good point. That whatever we do in dominion, in marriage, in family, in our societies, in our nation, it's always should be at the Lord's will. <laughs> you know, the Lord's will. That's what they're saying here. But the Lord's not saying that we don't engage in business. He's saying as we engage in business, it's at the Lord's will. Now let's read what it says. It says, Go to now, ye that say today or tomorrow, we will go into such a city and continue there a year and buy and sell and get gain. Whereas ye know not what shall be on the morrow, for what is your life, even a vapor, that shall appear for a little time and then vanish away. So in other words, it's having that mindset of knowing that we can only take one day at a time. And I always love that verse over there. I lost it. Where is it at? Romans or Corinthians. Anyway, what it says, <laughs> what it says unto us, sufficient is the day, each day to its own evil. Mm -hmm. 
Don't try to take tomorrow's evil today. But that doesn't mean you don't plan for tomorrow. But it does mean that as you make those plans and as you think that, you understand the reality that you can only deal with what you can do today. And that is if the Lord will, we will go into such a city and continue there a year and buy and sell and get gain. Nothing wrong with the plan. It's the mindset, the perspective, viewing it through the Word of God, viewing it as we're operating within the will of God and as we proceed in those things. 1 Timothy tells us this. 1 Timothy in the 5th chapter, in the 8th verse, says, If any man provide not for his own, especially for those of his own house, he hath denied the faith and is worse than an infidel. Some pretty strong language. You know, I mean, that's just about as strong as language as you find out with any sin in the Bible. <laughs> I mean, that's pretty tough. He's denied the faith that is worse than an infidel if he does not provide for his own and especially for his own house, his own family, his own livelihood. And then what does it say in 2 Thessalonians? <laughs> I mean, this is some really strong language over here. In 2 Thessalonians, where it says this, you find these words starting about the 10th verse. It says, For even when we were with you, this we commanded you, that if any would not work, neither should he eat. I wish we could have that as the motto of our federal government. <laughs> When we put those bills in place, if you won't work, you donate. That's just what it says. And notice, this is a command. I mean, some strong language. So we got some strong language on one side if you don't do this, and some strong language on this side that you ought to work. For it says, for we hear that there are some that walk among you disorderly, working not at all. But are busy by it. Now again, you understand, we're not talking about people that are not able to work. Mm -hmm. Too old to work or have physical limitations where they're not able to function or hold out a job. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about people who are able to work. Able-bodied individuals who are able to work but are working not at all and they are busybodies. And then what does he say? Now them that are such we command and exhort by our Lord Jesus Christ. I don't know how the language could get any strong. As strong as any language of any command that you can hardly find in the Word of God. And he's already spent a couple of verses talking about that and he's going to keep driving it home. That with quietness they work and eat their own bread. Eat their own bread. But ye, brethren, be not weary in well-doing. I really want to give you that right now at this point after things we've talked about thus far. Because that's what I feel like in today's time. You're like, my word. It just gets overwhelming. Everything you pick up to read about what's going on, every action that seems to be taken by our federal government, every law that they try to pass through just seems to pour out more ungodliness and wickedness and depravity and is of a reprobate mind, not understanding, totally void of judgment. And you get weary, you get worn out. And there's people that won't work. So we say, well, I'm not going to work either. 
They won't work. I'm just not going to work. They're not going to do right. I won't do right either. I certainly don't want to work and pay taxes and my taxes go to help them. <laughs> no, brothers and sisters. Word of Scott says, but ye, brethren, be not weary in well-doing. Mm-hmm. Keep at it. Keep at it. Keep on. Because remember, God knows we're dust. <laughs> God knows we're flesh. God knows we're weak. God knows we're sinners. God knows all that. He understands all that. God knows the great contradiction of sinners that exist in this world to us as believers and those that are born again of the Spirit of God. He understands that. He knows that. So he says, be not weary in well-doing. Do not lose your grasp, your hold upon. Do not be spoiled by the philosophy and vain deceit of this world. Don't be deceived by it, but lay hold of these truths, these principles that are laid down by God in His Word. Let's talk about, and we've touched on this some already. Talk about government. I, I thought about when I said, how do you even start? What do you even say? <laughs> when you get to this. But we will say what the point is. What is the point? What does God say about government? What does God put in place about government? What does it say in the 13th chapter of the book of Romans? It says in this 13th chapter, very plainly lays out to us, let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, for there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. You resist the power, you resist the ordinance of God. And it goes on down through here. We're not going to just read all this for sake of time. And it goes about how the rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. They're ministers of God for good. And goes on down to the fifth verse and says, Wherefore you must needs be subject, not only for wrath, but also for conscience sake. For this cause pay ye tribute also, for they are God's ministers attending continually upon this very thing. Render therefore to all their dues. Tribute to whom tribute is due. Custom to whom custom. Fear to whom fear. Honor to whom honor. So as we are the citizens, most of us, I think, is a few that's not of the state of Georgia, but of whatever state you are, as we're citizens of this state or whatever state, as we're citizens of the United States of America, as we're members of our community and our society, where we are, we have a responsibility then to be subject to the powers that be and to render as we ought to lawfully render to those powers. And we complain a lot about government. And we are upset a lot about government and thankfully we live in a nation where we at least have some possibility of influencing that government. There's a lot of people that live in governments that don't have that option at all. Mm -hmm. Uh, But we do at least have that option and we certainly ought to exercise that option option, and do what we can. But whether we have that option or not, we're to render as we're due to render. Because remember, during the entire life of Jesus Christ, they were under the Roman authority. Mm-hmm. And Jesus never got them out from under the Roman authority, did he? As a matter of fact, what did Jesus say over here in the book of Matthew in the 22nd chapter when this issue was brought before him about paying tribute? And he was asked the question, should we pay the tribute? Is it lawful to give tribute unto Caesar or not? And in the 22nd chapter, the 18th verse, well, let's go on down uh, to the 19th verse, 
He said, Show me the tribute money. And they brought unto him a penny. And he said unto them, Whose image and superscription? And they said unto him, Caesar's. Then saith he unto them, Render therefore unto Caesar the things which are Caesar's, and unto God the things which are God's. In other words, in our service unto God, as he says here back in Romans 13, we are to appropriately render unto the powers that be that are ordained, which is the government under which we function. And remember, the Roman government was an ungodly, wicked government. They were serving pagan, idol gods. And yet Christ still says, render unto them their due. Render unto them what they are to have. And He did not deliver them out. That's what they were hoping for when He talked to those two, road, two men on the road to Emmaus after He was resurrected. They told Jesus Christ in Luke 24 and in the 21st verse says, but we trusted that it had been He which should have redeemed Israel. Her hope and desire was that they were going to be redeemed out from under the authority of the Roman government. That they were going to go back to being an independent nation as they were in their earlier days of glory, like it was back in the days of David and Solomon, that they were going to be restored unto that. But that's not what Jesus Christ did, did He? Instead, we continue to have instruction. It tells us over here in 1 Peter in the second chapter, and in the 13th verse, says, Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether it be to the king as supreme, or unto governors, or unto them that are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers, for the praise of him that do, them that do well. For so it is the will of God, more strong language, that by well-doing you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. And that's what we're, that's, boy, that's where we're at, brothers and sisters, that we would not be weary in well-doing, that we would continue on steadfast in the Word of God, and that it would put to silence the foolish, the ignorance, the wickedness, the ungodliness, the total irrationality of this, the perversions that are being put out there before us today. But we continue on steadfast in the Word of God, and we submit as we can lawfully submit. Now we certainly are not going to submit if we're called upon to do that that is unlawful. Just like Peter said unto the council, we're to obey God rather than men. Amen. But we are to be subject to the governor, to the king, and the powers to be as it is appropriate to render tribute and to render as we should. So we have, even with government, as we see today, these just terrible things that happened. We see Russia evading another country, the Ukraine, and all of that. But nevertheless, brothers and sisters, when when people talk, sometimes people talk about uh, government, and we talk about working with government, and that we ought to vote, and we ought to make effort to do what we can to make our voice be heard. People will say statements like, "Well, yeah, but we don't need to trust the government." I understand what they're saying, brothers and sisters. But God has ordained the powers that be. Amen. <laughs> I mean, this, they're acting like that there shouldn't be government. I don't want there not to be government. I don't want to go to anarchy. I don't want to go. I don't want, like we've seen in some cities, I don't want for there not to be any police out there. Amen. I don't want there not to be any protection against those that are breaking the law. I don't want that. We don't want to go in that direction. And not only do I not want that, that's not the point. The point is, God says, 
that government is what he has put in place. It has a lawful, legitimate place. So whatever that government may be, we need to remember that we're called upon by God to do what? To pray. Mm-hmm. <laughs> pray. Isn't it that? It's also interesting how this is actually phrased here. For in the first Timothy in the second chapter, for it says I exhort therefore, first of all, supplications, prayers, and intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men. And now before he talks specifically anything about preachers, churches, the success of the cause of Jesus Christ, uh, the coming of the kingdom of God, what does he say next? It says that we will pray for kings and for all that are in authority. And we pray for them. Amen. So don't throw them out because it's not working. <laughs> pray is what we need to do. And he says we need to pray that we would lead a quiet and a peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. And in this nation, we have been tremendously blessed that we have by and large been able to do what? We have been able to study to be quiet, to work with our hands, and to do our own business. Mm -hmm. And to lead a quiet and a peaceable life. Mm -hmm. And if you weren't, it's because you were stirring it up, not because it wasn't possible for you to have that quiet and a peaceable life. So that's all I'm going to say about government. Now let's talk about, and this is really the last one before we have one final point that we want to make. And this is God has also prescribed and given unto us our individual service unto God. It's something that God has put in place that we would do things that He has called upon us to do. Let's go over here at the book of Ephesians. Probably no better place than that, probably, to make this point. Where it says in the book of Ephesians, the 8th chapter, the glorious verses, it says, For by grace are you saved, through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus. Wow, how can you get it better than that? But then it says, Created unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. And what are some of those good works? We've been talking about them, haven't we? Dominion, and marriage, and family, and society, and nations, and government, and business, and economy, caring for ourselves, all these things we've been looking at. But then it says also over here, in Titus, it makes this statement. Over here to Titus, the third chapter, says this in the eighth verse. Says, This is a faithful thing, and these things I will that thou affirm constantly. <laughs> Titus, as a minister of the gospel, continually put this principle before God's people that they which believed in God, oh my believers, we believers might be careful to maintain good works. Careful. And how is part of being careful? It's bewaring that we are not spoiled by philosophy and vain deceit of this world. And then it says, these things are good and profitable unto man. Let me say this about the good works. Uh, 
I have in the past preached whole discourses, whole series on this, but it's a significant major point. And that is that the good works that God has given us to perform not only are under God's glory, not only under His praise, but they are workable. They are functional. They are beneficial. They are things that do us good. They are things that help us as we operate and function in this life. That that God has talked about in dominion and marriage and in family and in business and in society and government and all these areas. These are all things that God has laid down not just as task for us to perform. Not like just go out here like they do in the military sometimes. Go out here and dig this hole and then fill it back in and dig another hole and fill it back in. It's not just mindless work, brothers and sisters. These are good and profitable unto me. Not only is it good and profitable unto you, but unto your marriage, unto your family, but also outside of your family, unto your church, unto your larger extended family. It goes out to all of that and has that larger, greater impact in our lives as we perform this individual service. What does Romans say? The book of Romans. I did realize, by the way, that there were a couple of things I meant to touch on that I passed over. Sorry about that. But in the book of Romans, in the 12th chapter, it tells us, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercy of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be you transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Same question, though. But what if we don't do that? What if we fail? What if we stumble? What if we backslide? What if we fall in the ditch? And sometimes we fall bad. <laughs> very badly. And we get ourselves in very bad, difficult, hard situations. Brothers and sisters, we're to get back up and to continue on as we live in this world. It tells us over here in the book of Philippians. Philippians makes this statement, and I know there's perhaps other ways you can think of this scripture legitimately so, but hopefully it will at least make sense in this context of what we're presenting to you this afternoon. It says in Philippians in the third chapter, and in the twelfth verse, the Apostle Paul acknowledging, and I'm starting in the middle of this, he's been not as though I had attained already, or either were already perfect. You remember our sermon last night, but I'll follow after it that which I may apprehend, that for which I am all which also I am apprehended of Christ Jesus. Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, haven't made it, haven't got there, haven't attained. Nevertheless, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before. I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. You continue on. Suppression used to be some years ago. Keep on trucking. You keep on keeping at it. You keep on moving. Yes, we stumble and fall, but it's not going to help you to stay in the ditch. That's not going to help any of these principles we've talked about to stay in the ditch. 
We have to get back up by the grace and the mercy of God, leaning upon Him, trusting upon Him, and take a step forward. Sometimes you feel like you're making two steps back and one step forward. Or three steps back and one step forward. Or it seems like every step forward you make, you only get just these incremental small steps. My brothers and sisters, the point is that we are to continue to press. To continue labor, continue to strive. And I did skip over two major points that I meant to make. So we'll go back. We'll back up and make those. And one of those is the ministry of the gospel. And this is really important because I want to say some things about this in regard to my own self. So I didn't have that opportunity. But over here in Acts, in the 20th chapter, in the 8th verse, 28th verse, it says, Take heed, therefore, unto yourselves and to all the flock over which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers to feed the church of God which he hath purchased with his own blood. Boy, if you want to know the responsibility of a gospel minister is to feed the people of God. He's been made an overseer by God and to feed God's people whom he's been purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ. It's a major responsibility. And we find that it says unto the people of God that we are to esteem those then, rightly so. And not because of who they are, because of what God has called them to be and has called them to do in 1 Thessalonians. And I trust you're doing this on the behalf of your pastor here. I believe you are. It says here in 1 Thessalonians in the 5th chapter, the 12th verse, And we beseech you, brethren, to know them which labor among you and are over you in the Lord, and admonish you, and esteem them very highly in love. Why? Because Brother John's such a great guy. For their work's sake. Which I do think he's a great guy, by the way. But for their work's sake. And be at peace among yourselves. But whether he's this wonderful, great person or not, we need to esteem them for their work's sake. The Apostle Paul was a wretched, ungodly man. And when he started preaching, the people didn't want to hear him. said, man, we can't... (laughs) This man has been persecuting the church. But they needed to esteem him for the work's sake. Because he'd been called out to preach the gospel of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Hebrews 13 tells us, that we are to obey them. And I am going to move along with these uh, for the sake of time. But it does say in Hebrews 13, both in the seventh verse, where it tells us to remember them which have the rule over you and have spoken unto you the word of God. His faith follow, considering the end of their conversation. Again, in the seventeenth verse, obey them that have the rule over you and submit yourselves, for they must watch for yourselves as they must give an account that they may do it with joy and not with grief. For that is unprofitable unto you. You've been placed in the church of Jesus Christ, given a man as authority over you, and you may you conduct yourselves in a way that their service is with joy and not with grief. Now we've been given a responsibility, you've been given a responsibility, but we too, in addition to what we've already read, have what's said over here in First Peter in the fifth chapter where it says that we are to feed the flock of God. Second verse. Which is among you, taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint, but willingly, not for filthy lucre, but of a ready mind. Neither as being lords over God's heritage, be it being examples unto the flock. Well, again, what do we do when that doesn't happen? 
What do we do when the congregation doesn't conduct themselves in the manner that they ought? What do we do when members get off on off track? What do we do when the ministry does not do what they ought to do or preach as they ought to preach and they're not feeding the flock of God as they ought to feed the flock of God? So what are we going to do? We're going to throw the minister out. Remember, God could have sent angels to preach to us, couldn't He? But He didn't do that, did He? God could have spoken to us through the voice from heaven, as He did on some occasions, and has done. But He didn't do that, did He? No, God has prescribed that sinful man who can appreciate your sinful state would be those that would be over you in the Lord, would be overseers, would be those to teach you, instruct you, and admonish you. What do we find over here in 1 Corinthians? Very interesting statement. In 1 Corinthians, in the first chapter, down here in the 12th verse, the Apostle Paul, talking to this church at Corinth, which had some issues, says, For this I say, that every one of you saith, I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, I am of Cephas, I am of Christ. (laughs) Let's think about what the issues were here. Yes, love to be of the Apostle Paul. How could you top that? Man, the Apostle Paul is our preacher. He's our pastor. He's our minister. That's where I want to go. I want to be be a member there. (laughs) I want to be where that preacher is. But then there were some, because you remember the Apostle Paul says that his speech was mean and contemptible. You remember that? And some would say, man, you know, he doesn't look, he doesn't just present too good. His words are good, but I'm just tired of looking at him every Sunday. So I like Apollos. He is eloquent, well spoken. I'd rather be of Apollos. He can make a good presentation and just be oh flowery the words and the language that he comes out with. But then these may say, no, you know. Uh, Paul's great, Apollos is good, but Peter, he walked with Christ. He was the spokesman of the apostles. He was the one that Christ spoke to after his resurrection and said, feed the flock of God. I want to be in his flock. (laughs) Yeah, I want to be in his flock. But then, there were some said, nope, I don't need a preacher at all. I'm just going to listen to Christ. What can be wrong with that, right? I'm just, I'm just going, I'm just going to take my Bible and I just, just, just me and the Word, Jesus Christ and God. And I, don't, I don't need the minister. I don't need that. But that's not what God said, is it? <laughs> that's not what God has said that we need. It's just like you go back. Let's go all the way back to Adam. When God said it is not good for man to be alone. You know, from one perspective, you could say, well, how could God say that? Adam had it all, right? I mean, my word. (laughs) He had the Garden of Eden. He had the whole creation. He had everything that God, and he could walk with God in the cool of the day. How could that not have been enough? How could God have said that wasn't enough? Interesting. But God said it was not good. 
for the man to be alone because it was not God's prescribed way for his creation, for the way that he had created Adam. And it is not good for the way that he has created us and that we have come down through the generations, especially after the fall, it is no good for us to stand alone without the ministry of the gospel. And it is a man that is called to stand before us. And I can assure you that this man will stumble and that he won't always do what's right. And he won't always preach what's right. I can say that with full confidence, not because he won't try the best not to do that, but because I know he's a sinner. And because none of us have perfect understanding of the Word of God. And none of us can say everything in the perfect way that we ought to say. Only the Lord Jesus Christ, in His body of flesh and blood, as He walked upon the face of this earth, said everything that ought to be said at the right time. And never left anything unsaid that should have been said. Never stumbled over his words. Never misspoke. Never left anything out that needed to have been said that should have been said. That's only Jesus Christ. Only Jesus Christ 100% perfectly applied the Word of God. And he did that a lot. He said, as it is written. As it is written. But as it was written. But only he was able to perfectly make application of those words as he spoke them. And then, of course, as the writers of the inspired word of God, of course, were able to pin down the inspired word. And as they referenced the things in the Old Testament as well. But brothers and sisters, we today are not in that position. That's not where we are today. So as you have a minister of the gospel before you and you face challenges and you have difficulties and there are things that he says that you wish he had not said or not done, don't give up on the ministry. (laughs) I may have not said everything that you thought I should have said during the course of this weekend and these three sermons. You may have sat there and you said, well, wait a minute, what about this though? Or what about that issue? Or has he thought about this? Or why didn't he use that scripture? Or why couldn't he have done that? And I'm really, if you're doing that, I think that's great. Because that makes you think thinking about the sermon. Uh, but don't let that take you down the road of that you're just fed up with the ministry. You give up on God's prescribed way for us to have a man stand before us to preach the gospel unto us out of his word. What it needs to do, like it does, just like it does with the uh, government and all these other issues, it needs to put us on our knees to pray for this man Mm -hmm. as he would feed you as you are the flock of God. Mm -hmm. Pray that the Lord would give him what he needs to be able to speak the words that God would have him to speak unto you. And when you hear him speak, as he's blessed to speak, that you receive it not as his words, but as God's words. Lastly, let's think about the church of Jesus Christ. And it was hard to talk about that one without uh, getting close into that. But God has certainly given us his church. Given us the church of Jesus Christ. In the book of Ephesians, a lot of places you could go, but in the book of Ephesians it does tell us that He's given us these gifts unto the church for the edifying of the body, for the work of the ministry, for the perfecting of the saints. It says that 
and this is in the 4th chapter in the 12th verse, going on down to the 13th verse, we come to a knowledge of faith, the perfect man, we're not children, tossed to and fro, 15th verse, speaking the truth in love, 16th verse, for whom the whole body fitly joined together, and compacted by that which every joint supplieth, according to the effectual working and the measure of every part, making the increase of the Make it an increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. And God tells us over in the book of Ephesians that we're not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together. As the manner of some is, and so much more as you see that they're approaching. I may have not gotten that exactly right, but it's close enough. Uh, much more. What? Boy, in the day, we need it more than ever. <laughs> We need the church more than ever, the ministry more than ever. To assemble ourselves together, to come together as the people of God. But again, like we've said these many times, what if it doesn't work out that way? What if you're not happy with your church? It tells us over in Corinthians that when one member suffers, we're to suffer with it. And when one member's honored, we need to be honored with it. But what if you're suffering and you feel like nobody cares? What if you feel like you're struggling and nobody cares? What if you feel like you're not having the compassion and sensitivity that you would like for someone to have? Or maybe they're working with you and helping you, but they're not doing the way you would like for them to do. Or you're not conducting yourself. So what do you do then? Do you do like we said back with this earlier? You're just going to say, well, I'm going to just go out here on my own. I'm just going to take God's Word, sit down here under a tree, and it's going to be God's Word, God's creation, me and this tree, and I'm good to go. No, brothers and sisters, that's not what God has given unto us. He's given unto us His church. He's given unto us His ministry. He's given unto us our individual service. But there is one last thing, if you'll give me just a few more minutes, that I will close with this morning. Because I wanted to leave you with this in the midst of all these other things. Because there's one thing, there's one thing that God has given there is one thing that God has prescribed. There is one institution that God has established that is sure and absolute and will never fail. And we find that over in the book of Hebrews. I think we read this last night. But over in the book of Hebrews in the 10th verse of the 8th chapter, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days. I will put my laws in their mind and write them in their hearts and I will be to them a God and they shall be to me a people. And they shall not teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother saying, Know the Lord for all shall know me for the least to the greatest. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. Brothers and sisters, there are no what ifs. Those statements in that covenant of grace. There's no what if. God's not going to bring a knowledge of Himself unto every single child of grace. There is no what if. God says they all shall know Me from the least to the greatest. That's why Jesus Christ told Nicodemus, you must be born again. (laughs) There is no what if to God being merciful to our unrighteousness. There is no what if to God not remembering our sins and iniquities. There's no what ifs. It is sure and steadfast. And God tells us over in the book of Psalms 89, for the sake of time, we'll turn to there, but God says, my covenant I will not alter. My covenant I will not break. 
He will not change that that has gone out of His mouth. He will stand fast to that. And as we see in 2 Timothy, and we may have read this last night as well, but we'll read the whole verse this time. It says in 2 Timothy in the 19th verse, says, Nevertheless, the foundation of God standeth sure. Why is it sure? Because it is not upon the foundation of us. <laughs> Having this seal, the Lord knoweth them that are His. And who is it then that has made it sure? It is none other than the second person of the Godhead. The third person makes it sure unto us as we come into a knowledge of that that has been done. But it is the second person of the Godhead that makes it sure in its accomplishment in time that happened 2,000 years ago. For we find that it says, again, watch you go to We're just going to read this one verse. It says in the 8th chapter of the book of Hebrews, in the 6th verse, before we were read before, and it says, speaking of Christ, but now hath He obtained a more excellent ministry. Talking about compared to the Old Testament way of worship. A more excellent ministry by how much also He is the mediator of a better covenant which was established upon better promises. Because the promises of this covenant was based in God and His purpose and His will. It was a tabernacle, brethren and sisters, as it says over here in the 11th verse of the ninth chapter, but Christ becoming a high priest of good things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands. That is to say, not of this building. The old tabernacle, the old building, the old temple was made with hands. The sacrifices were made with hands. But here, brethren and sisters, is a work that was performed by the very Son of God. By the very Son of God, which is brought then into our hearts and souls, which then leaves us with this assurance. And I'm just going to close. I'm going to stop. It says over here in the book of John. In the book of John, we'll stop with this. It says in the book of John, in the sixth chapter, the Lord Jesus Christ makes these statements unto us. He says in the 37th verse, all that the Father giveth me shall come to me. No ifs in there. Amen. And him that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. No ifs. For I came down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him that sent me. And this is the will of him that sent me, that of all which he hath given me, I should lose nothing. Amen. No ifs, ands, or buts shall lose not a single child of grace that God had chosen before the foundation of the world and given unto Christ. I shall lose nothing but raise it up again at the last day. Amen.